Hey, Emily. Hey, Greg. It's uh, 1.41 in the morning here in Boston. And I look like it. <laughs> On this edition of ESPN and Ice, we're going to talk about the Stanley Cup Final, Game 2. We're going to talk about urinals, and we're going to talk about the Gary Bettman press conference, speaking of urinals, uh, in which we t- there was a great many things discussed the other day about the state of the NHL. And we're also going to talk to our good friend Frank Saravelli, who's over there writing a story as we do this podcast. And he'll be joining us at some point, hopefully, because we're all very tired and punchy. Can't wait. Let's start the show. <laughs> Proper, shall we? From the ice to your earbuds, a podcast about hockey, featuring things to do with hockey. From your friends at ESPN, it's ESPN on ice with Wachinski and Kaplan. Hey, everybody. It's uh, ESPN on ice, the podcast where ESPN talks about hockey. I'm Greg Wachinski, senior NHL writer. I'm Emily Kaplan, national NHL reporter. And Greg... I'm here at TD Garden where I've had some fond, fond memories this spring. Uh, today, you know, I was not in the visiting locker room, but I've heard everything that's happened with this urinal. And I just want to remind everyone that a few weeks ago I was here when I heard Justin Williams talk about a poop sandwich. Poop sandwich and urinals is where we're at in these playoffs. Um, as we do the show, it is uh, hours after the completion of Game 2, a game that featured a thrilling overtime victory for the St. Louis Blues to even their series at 1-1 against the Boston Bruins, and then featured an even more thrilling revelation by Oscar Sundquist to Jeremy Rutherford at The Athletic at first, and then to the rest of us later on, that Craig Berube, exalted St. Louis coach, uh, was in the dressing room and told the boys that uh, Carl Gunnarsson, who scored the game-winning goal in overtime, sidled up next to him at the urinal while they are doing their business and said... Give me, uh, uh, give me one more chance. I saw it all on video. The Blues have been great about doing these locker room videos. And yeah, he said it. There was a couple more expletives in there, but uh, I wonder if those expletives were in the locker room or in the urinal or not. <laughs> um, look, Carl Gunnarsson, though, it's a great story. He has gone 253 games since mm-hmm. 2015, since the last time he had a multi-point game Wow! in general. Get a goal and assist tonight. Yes. Yep. And he hits the post. He clings it. He dents it against Tukaraz late in the third. And then that happens. Mm-hmm. That happens. And it was, in fact, a wicked pissa here in Boston. I have to say, it took those writers a little bit longer than usual to write because everyone had to get out their best puns. Uh, Greg, what were your favorites? Well, this this uh, this victory took the urinal cake. Um, I believe that after a win like this, this is typically where the Blues would play glory hole. This is just too ripe for Greg. I'm going to have to steer the conversation a little bit tonight. Uh, a couple things that I found interesting about Game 2. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, we had the Matt Grizzlick hit. We did. I don't think there's going to be any supplemental discipline there. Because, Oscar Sundquist hit him right. in the head and, and took him out of the game, went to the hospital for observation. Yeah, and, and I think part of the issue is that Grizzlick uh, was off his balance to begin with, mm-hmm. um, and therefore he's not going to get disciplined. But once they go up to five defensemen, that's when things shifted. I think in the first period they were playing – Probably the game they wanted it was a little more loosey goosey than uh, they had played in game one. But after that, they could sustain no offensive pressure. Maybe mm-hmm. they were a little fatigued, and it really added up. What did you think? Yeah, I would agree with that. I also think though the Blues really sort of solved their issues in the forecheck. Yes. I mean, g- game one, the story of that game was they simply couldn't do what they're good at. They're not a team that scores off the rush. They're a team that gets the puck in the zone. They cycle it around. They they win battles against the boards, and they get high danger chances around the crease. And in in game one. That team existed for exactly 21 minutes, and then it disappeared. 
uh, in game two, that team was the team that the Blues were for the majority of the playoffs. I mean, um, it was an impressive feat. I, I, you know, it's funny. When, when we were talking about this game before tonight, we were talking about, like, what is this series going to end up looking like? Mm-hmm. Was the first period of game one a symptom of the Bruins having that long layoff and they didn't have their legs and then the Blues did what they did? Or could the Blues do what they did in that first period of game one throughout the series? And I think now there's proof of concept. Now we can see that these are two teams that are mirror images of each other in many ways. They both want to control pace. They both both want to control tempo. And the Blues showed in game two that they do have the ability to dictate terms to the Bruins with their forecheck, which is what they needed to see after that game one loss. That's yeah. for sure. It was a heavy game. It was a physical game. This is how we all thought the series was going mm-hmm. to be played and how it's going to be won. I honestly think at this point it's going to be a game of attrition of which team is healthier at the end because I think this is going to be some kind of big game of thrones, hunger games type of battle I mean, of, of who can. The Tory Krug hit yeah. in, in game one, the now legendary Wrecking Krug hit, Robert Thomas does not play in game two. Craig Ruby says it had nothing to do with the hit. I mean, you know. Wink, wink, nod, nod. A three-foot guy gets thrown like a lawn dart into a dude, and uh, all of a sudden that dude doesn't play in game two. I mean, he he granted was already nursing an injury of some sort, but didn't I believe it's to the rest, yeah. Um, And then, you know, Bacchus had a huge hit on Sammy Blay. The other thing that happened as far as physicality goes in this game were were two uh, goalie interference penalties. On, on the Blues in this game as they were running into Tukarask, which is something you don't normally see. I actually think one of the bigger issues for the Blues is we talked about how disciplined they were all playoffs. Game one, they get five penalties. They're like, no, 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 that wasn't us. Yeah. And then game two, they get five penalties, including two goalie yeah. interference. The first time there's been multiple goalie interference calls in a Stanley Cup final game since 2008. Right, and the good news is that they've killed off eight of ten power plays. Sure. Ones. I mean, that's that's going by the percentages pretty darn good, which is, you know, the good news. The bad news is they keep on taking penalties and they're playing with fire. Um, I think the Maroon line had its best game mm-hmm. in a while, and I, I think it's no coincidence it's because Thomas wasn't on the line. I think, I mean, he's just hurt. You he's hobbling, he yeah. Play. So, you know, Robbie Fabry being on that line made him better. Uh, and then the Gunnarsson goal. I mean, so, you know, it was a delayed penalty against the Boston Bruins. And uh, and then he goes and he, he cranks what uh, Colton Pareko called his howitzer from the blue line to to uh, score the game-winning goal in overtime. Um, you know, in the game-winning goal uh, pool of life, not a name that you would have wanted to have picked <laughs> Carl Gunnarsson. But this is now the second time he's beaten Tukarask in this very building this season. It's really incredible. And do you know what's incredible tonight, Greg? What? We're doing things a little bit differently. It's late. We're not going to do a formal intro. Frank Saravalli has finished his story. He was the one who was going most nuts over the pisser puns. So we're just going to welcome him right now in a nice transition. Frank, welcome to the podcast. And can you please tell us your favorite urinal pun? Because, look, we are not copy editors. We're not going to take this out. Oh, good. Well, yeah, I mean, so Carl Gunnarsson strides up to Craig Berube at the urinal, and he pulls out a guarantee. (laughs) And it was huge. I mean, like, you think about... This guy that has zero goals in 56 career playoff games, mm-hmm. to have the confidence to say, I need one more shot. I mean, as you said, who would have bet on that? I mean, mm-hmm. it's the washroom conversation heard around the hockey world. Yeah. Call it whatever you want. The Boston Pea Party. Um, <laughs> you know, there's tons of different things you could say about this game, but mm-hmm. this has got to be the first ever urinal conversation that's etched in Stanley Cup lore. Yeah. I mean, 
There's mm. been tons of things that have, you know. There was no actual poop sandwich is the problem. Well, thank God. I mean, right. what would have happened if there were? He guaranteed, he said, I, I need one more shot, and he sent that zipper right past Tukarask in overtime. Perfect. Yeah. Again, I'm going to steer this conversation because Frank might be just as bad as, uh, and I, I was the one that set it up. I have to tell what was your, here. What was, what was your takeaway from this game? Just the, how difficult of a spot the Blues were in, and found a way to bounce back. And, and they always do this. That's, tra- that's that's their sort of their modus operandi is to be in this spot and bounce back. Trailing twice in this game, they get the goals that they needed. Bennington got the saves that he needed after two goals against that were really kind of shaky through the five hole. That you know you're thinking this guy that you know, to me it's with Jordan Bennington. It's sometimes been fake it till you make it. This facade that he's put up. Mm-hmm. Do I look nervous? I mean. You could tell he was nervous and frustrated in game one, I think. So, um, you know, this team is incredible the way that they've done that all year from January 7th when he got his first start on. Um, you know, it's the same old story over and over again so many times that it almost doesn't even feel special anymore, but it is. And he, and he, he's such an odd duck. Like he, I, I, I know he's a goalie, Greg. I know, I know he's a goalie, but I know what you're saying, like the did you do a look nervous thing and, and, and that whole bit. Um, he 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 never looks great, you know what I mean? Like like there's never a, yeah. he's, he's not doing he's the two, great games. He's, yeah, he's, he's, like he's not technically doing, sound. Yeah, but he's not like he tracks the puck exceptionally well. But, but so his, very good puck his, his 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 greatness is within the context of the game. It's never like going out there and pitching a shutout. It's always making the saves when he needs to make them, and it's kind of sneaky that way. Like the goals he gave up tonight weren't weren't great. That's what know? I just said. Yeah, right. I mean, but I, but but the saves that he made later on were were, were great. Yeah, and like he allowed his team to take over the game. Yeah. You know, because, you know, you look at the second half of that game, it was almost as dominant in the Blues' favor as game one was in the Bruins. So, uh, in the Bruins' favor. So, yeah, yeah it's, um, it's amazing what he's done. I, I think, you know, we've talked about what is Jordan Bennington's future, right? Mm-hmm. You know, if you're the St. Louis Blues for this guy that needs a contract, he's played on four straight one year deals, what do you pay him? Yeah. You know, uh, I'd imagine he comes in somewhere in the two and a half to three million dollar range. Mm. But is he your, you know, is he your long term future and, and starter? I would say that he is, given that his numbers have been good everywhere he's played. Yeah, this guy I wrote about a few weeks ago. He's the anti Hamburglar. <laughs> I mean, he not only has he had the sustained playoff success, but he has the ability as well that. You know, as I mentioned, in other levels, he's been great. It's not just a flash in the pan. He's a good guy that just didn't get a shot. Right. So, Frank, we've seen in the past the different guys who have great playoff performance, and that totally manifests with a big contract. You've been covering the playoffs all year, maybe someone on these two teams or somewhere else. Who do you think is going to make out the biggest financially from a big playoff run this year? Oh, man. Besides I mean, Bennington. The list is long. Like, Marcus Johansson has found a way to rejuvenate his career in a big way. So many injury questions and... Obviously, the concussion history is going to stand in the way of a long-term deal. Yeah. Like, he's a primary producer in this league. I love the trade that they made, getting him and Coyle, two guys that were 57, 60-point scorers in this league previously. All of a sudden, you plug those guys into your third line, and you've one of the best lines in the playoffs. So yeah. they've been dynamic. Uh, Johansson's helped himself. Is If I'm not mistaken, is Gunnarsson up as well? Yeah, I think he is. Uh, so, I mean, he's another guy that had injury history. Look, one goal is not going to you know, <laughs> change your, your future, but... Um, one guarantee so, might. 
Well, that's right. We're going to be talking about this for a long time. And by we, he means Frank and Greg. Well, yeah, I mean, there's too many puns. <laughs> it's too good. I mean, just like seriously, I, I, I asked him to paint the picture, and obviously he didn't go into detail. But, <laughs> hang on. First off, his aim was perfect, too. Uh, <laughs> in overtime. But, I mean, he's standing there and it's full equipment. I was I text a few players after the game to kind of get the lowdown. They're like, yeah, I just walked up in his equipment. And, yeah. Like, I'm sure it happens all the time. But sure. Someone asked Alex Petrangelo after the game, is it normal for coaches and players to, to, to pee next, next to each, to each other? other. He and he's said, like, sometimes you just run out of toilets. There aren't enough to go around. Yeah, so you just go. Yeah. You, it, I, I thought that the question. The team that pees together wins, wins together. together. Yeah. It's good. I mean, it's uh, everybody was flush with victory, Frank. Well, this is a golden opportunity for me to <laughs> come was, in and steer the, the conversation so again. <laughs> um, let's talk you're about. You're enjoying it, though, right? Like, you're not, oh, like, no, sitting over here. Yeah. I'm clearly egging you guys yeah. on. So let's talk about the Bruins for a second, because I think after game one, we all assumed they were going to win in a sweep. Uh, now it's not going to happen. It kind uh, of felt like that. Like at a certain point in this game, you're like, oh man, like after yeah. that coil goal at first, get, yeah, they need or the Nordstrom goal even. The way that they 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 played in the last two periods of game one, you thought to yourself, okay, in your head, you're like, this could be a sweep. This could be the story of of of, of the Blues becoming the Buffalo Bills of of, of hockey and never winning a, a, a game in the uh, championship round. The thing that that's interesting about Boston right now is the hell's going on with the Bergeron line. Yeah, I was going to say if the Bruins had won, that would be like their biggest positive moving forward is that, okay, they're up 2 nothing, and you haven't gotten a lot out of the first Anything. line. Right, so then you'd have to think at some point during this series that they're going to get it together. They're too good not to. And we've mm-hmm. seen this previously in the playoffs where this line has been quiet and then all of a sudden erupts. Right, well, they even made a change there in the third period. Mm-hmm. Pasternak had played, mm-hmm. uh, shifted around and played on a different line to try and get a different look. I'd imagine that kind of perfection line will be back together mm-hmm. to start game three, but you never know. I mean, if all of a sudden you can kind of get the Bruins off their game, it's just another thing that the Blues have going for them. More chance of really quiet. Like, not the quiet mm-hmm. quiet in, in the antics department and quiet on the ice. And did you see him coming off the ice? What did he do off coming off the ice? I didn't see. Uh, I have to look. He was he was taunting, I believe it was Maroon in some sense. Well, Maroon was also taunting the Bruins bench. That might be well, something Well, yeah, there was some expletive like, there. He's, I, can't count, I can't even count how many times he's taken the puck into the offensive zone and pulled up and tried to find somebody versus trying to go to the net. Or shooting. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. It, it's interesting because the last time we saw Brad Marchand in a Stanley Cup final, he had zero points in six games against the Chicago Blackhawks. Oh, yeah. And I, I was told uh, by a few Bruins players that before the series started, he had said to the group, don't let this opportunity pass you by. The 2013 final haunted me for a while. Mm. And make sure you go out there and do it. And so far he hasn't. Um, I don't think we've heard the last of Brad Marchand in this series, but um, they've been shockingly quiet so far. He went off the ice, by the way, went and looked this up, uh, and said, why don't you cry about it, and did a, a motion that uh, <laughs> somehow illustrated. Yeah, yeah. Scoring the goal in Game 7 against Dallas and crying about his son? Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> like, rookie of the year crying? Like, I want my mommy! Mommy! Unclear, unclear. He's, he's such a master. Frank, what are your other takeaways of this postseason in general? Just how important it is to be hot at the right time. Right. I mean, if you look at the last 
the the records of every team in the league from March first on. I think of the top seven teams, like four of them were the final four standing. I mean, it's not rocket from science. February like, first on, it's been the Mar- Blues, okay, the Bruins, and the Hurricanes, three of the left, four finalists. Yeah, I mean, I, it's not rocket science, or I mean, I feel like Captain Obvious saying it. It's that's really what it is. Mm. And the funny thing is, the Lightning were the number one, obviously the number one mm-hmm. record. Um, I don't know. It's um, I'm a little bit surprised that the two heaviest teams are still standing because we've been saying how much speed and skill matters. I think it's clear that physicality still has a place in the game, and just because the game's called so differently when mm. you get to the playoffs, that. You know, you have to be built that way. Yeah, that's why it was interesting during the Dave Tippett press conference. We'll talk about Tippett later uh, with Edmonton that he used these teams as a reference point as far as like the oh, the, the quality. Oh, those of, fans are not going to want. No, to but that. he's saying he's saying the quality of their defense leads. They, they're defensive teams first, but they have the skill to then convert those chances. Is is his contention? Well, I, I remember this is giving me nightmares. If you're an Oiler fan, for. Peter Shelley's first press conference he used the word heavy 13 times. <laughs> I went back and counted. And so if that's kind of the way that they're trending when you have a team with Connor McDavid, I don't know that that's exactly what you want to do. But in saying all that, I would say that the Washington Capitals winning last year don't get enough credit for how heavy of a team they are. Sure. That's the truth. And, 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 you know, in Vegas... I mean, Vegas had some physicality to them, but I don't think that they were as physical as the Capitals were. Their blue line, though, had some edge to it, I think. Yeah. Like, that was the one thing you were saying, oh, man, their their blue line maybe doesn't move quick enough. Well, they kind of had that playoff-ready blue line that helped. Yeah. Marshall was throwing his body around a little bit. Well, he's like a little Toy Krug type. What uh, What was your prediction on this series before it, before it started? Bruins in seven. How do you feel about it now? Pretty good. I mean... This has all the makings of a knockdown, drag out, heavyweight slugfest. Um, you know, trading punches, and I just think you know, with the way these teams are built, with the style that they play, with the depth, like that's the one thing about the Bruins is that the Blues, I think, have finally kind of met their match because mm-hmm. their fourth line has been so good, and that's been the story of the Bruins as well. That they have these, you know, four lines that they can continually throw at each other. What I love about the Blues is that Craig Berube doesn't play based on line number or how much money you make. If you're not going, you're not playing. Right. And so you see that at times during the game where the ice time's out of whack and you're saying, okay, you know, you're waiting for their top line to get out there or whatever. They were really good tonight, but still, um, that's the way they play and that's the way the Bruins play. I guess last thing is you you knew Bruby for a long time. Are you surprised by this with him? I am. I think he's grown a bit. Yeah. In talking to some players that had played for him and then played again for him now, you know, they were saying he just seems like he keeps to himself more. He's spent so much time as an assistant in Philly that all of a sudden you make that transition Mm -hmm. to being the guy. Yeah. He was there almost a decade as an assistant serving under multiple head coaches and then it's hard to be everyone's confidant and the jokester and then all of a sudden being the boss yeah and so then yeah and so then you know he goes back to the ahl reinvents himself in chicago has jordan bennington play for him there (laughs) um and now all of a sudden you know he's on top again still Interim coach Craig Brewer, by the way. <laughs> right, exactly. Although Armstrong said there's a a field of one down to uh, one, yeah, for the job. So we'll assume that's him. But it's probably the coach that he never wanted. If if it makes any sense, like. 
my understanding is that he spent weeks after Craig Ruby took over interviewing and talking to potential candidates yeah. before ultimately staying the course. Was there, was there anybody that was close to getting the gig, you think? Not that I know of, but yeah. still. They started winning, so it kind of changed the dynamic of yeah, it. Yeah, I, I think, if I'm not mistaken, that they did try and take another run at Joel Quenville, mm-hmm. and that didn't work out. So, you know, sometimes it's funny, like, you know, all these guys are on the on our trade bait board. Like he could have blown up the team. Braden Chen was telling me that he thought he was getting traded on U.S. Thanksgiving. Yeah, to the Bruins. Yeah, that he was the big he, rumor. He yeah, said he thought it was done and got a call from a reporter saying that they thought it was done. Wow. So he was ready to go. Well, Frank, I am going to let you go after this, but you mentioned the trade bait. What do you think this summer? Who's uh, most likely to go in Vancouver at trade deadline? And well, by trade deadline, that... I mean draft deadline. And I'm losing my mind. At <laughs> yeah, I don't know that. You know, everyone's going to last that long. Uh, Phil Kessel at the top. Uh, oh, yeah. Followed very closely by Jason Zucker, the guy that the he can't go Wild back just there. don't want. He can't go back now. That's two failed botched trades that didn't happen. Um, there's no question that Phil Kessel's moving on. It's just a matter of where. And can you finally get Phil Kessel to agree to go somewhere? Where do you, where do you think he wants to go? Besides Arizona. I think Arizona is the number one destination for, for him. He was, yeah. yeah. Rick and Tonkin. the golf. Well, uh, yeah, to but eat they- hot dogs out of the Stanley Cup, but I don't know. <laughs> um, look, Rick Tockett is the star whisperer in Pittsburgh, and that's what's been missing since he's been in Arizona. Hmm. He found a way to, you know, be the, the guy that was at the sounding board for everyone, and he found a way to keep everyone happy. And if you look since then, they haven't been nearly as good no. since he's been gone. And I think that's a reunion that's certainly a possibility in the making. All right. Thank you, Frank. Go hit the head, buddy. You're clear. All right. So where can people find your work? <laughs> they can find it on tsn.ca. Cool. All right. That's Thank you, fun. Frank. Thank you. We're going to continue the podcast now. Continue the puns. Have fun. Emily, uh, Gary Bettman talked about a, a great many things. What stood out for you at the uh, State of the NHL address this year? I think there's a little bit of evolution in Gary Bettman. I think in the past when people would insult the league or say there was something wrong with the league, um, and he would do everything in his power to say, like, no, 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 things are fine. And I thought that quote that he had that I was trying to prevent my head from exploding, like, that just stuck with me because he was saying, hey, I hear all of your complaints and I feel them too and we're going to fix it. And I felt like that was the evolution I've seen of Gary Bettman, even in my time covering the league, which has been pretty short. The thing that bummed me out was that it's clear that he's got a a little bit of 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 a anticipation that they're going to expand replay. Um, and figure out something when it comes to some of the plays that we've seen in the postseason. But what bothers me is that it doesn't seem like they want to reduce replay. And honestly, the issue is is that they need to get the offside out of the coach's challenge pronto. Like, that's got to happen. And I, 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 from what I gather from both him and from Bill Daly, it is a situation where Bettman is the guy. He's the guy standing there saying the ship has sailed. You can't roll it back. Um, even if you have general managers and players and media and fans all saying that the spirit of the offside review has been violated by the way it's been used since it was enacted into the league, 
he's saying once it's in, it's in. And I, I was sort of surprised by that. I thought he'd be a little more flexible about that stuff. Yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, I, I think it's going to be interesting where they go from here. They said they want to talk to all constituents that should include players, that should include officials. Obviously, that'll include GMs and the competition committee of what the suggested fix is. When you talk to players, their biggest issue is this gray area you live in. Mm-hmm. It's, it feels so arbitrary. Why can we review some things and not other things? Why not all or why not nothing? Mm-hmm. And I think that's something they're going to have to address. And it's something, frankly, that I don't have confidence that they're going to address. I mm-hmm. think the solution is not going to be black or white. It's going to feel, still be somewhere in this gray area. Mm-hmm. And I guess had a couple of the other news is was uh, the uh, Slava Voinov stuff. Um, it sounds like it's a situation where the LA Kings have to tender him a contract that is sort of like reasonable, I guess is the word that the CBA uses, um, in order to get his rights, take him off the uh, voluntary retirement list, and then potentially trade his rights, if that's the case. And by the way, the Kings have no interest in keeping him around. Right. Like, he's not going to be a Los Angeles King. It's a huge, messy situation, and, and one that um, I just feel it's going to be fascinating to see if... Uh, if 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 somebody decides to try to sign this guy, I legit think there's going to be protests, like like picket sign protests outside of these teams' offices for everyone wants to sign this guy. Yeah, I'm I'm curious, and you know, you and I were kind of brainstorming before. We're going down the list of what teams' moral compass might lean that way, and, yeah. and do something like that. Honestly, I can't think of an obvious team. And you you mentioned the Nashville Predators; they don't need a defenseman. Uh, you know, they have a history. Sure, sure, sure. You know, I really can't see a home for him. Uh, I don't. I, I don't see it happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been wrong before. A couple other news and nuggets, though. Uh, they're not going to China this year no. uh, for preseason games. They're still very interested in because having a China communism celebration. Literally, I had to put that quote in the story because I was like, I can't just paraphrase this. <laughs> we need the actual quote. There's uh, some availability. Uh, issues because uh, people are just celebrating now. Uh, it's the 70th yeah. anniversary. Got to yeah, do Mal. it. Got to do it. Uh, another issue. I, I asked Gary Bettman. Um, you know, look, we, we know that they're not going to be clear about the women's league and, and where they stand with that. But I was curious if the league was going to do anything to help put on um, exhibitions or offer some training opportunities for the 200 women's players who are not playing in a league next year. Gary pretty much said, look, and I know that they're probably going to help again doing this rivalry series with the USA Canada. I think they'll have a presence there. Uh, he said it's up to individual clubs. You know, I know some people have done it. Uh, he said, we're still exploring it. We're going to let the dust settle. And then he threw out some random rumor that there could be another league sprouting up, which I know angered the NWHL because they're like, dude, why are you trying to help us fail so badly? What do you make of the NWHL? WHL signing all these players. And by all these players, you mean nine. Look, they're hanging on a thread here. No, no, no. And I don't mean that as an insult. I really don't. And and look, I, I want to be very respectful to this league because, you know, we, we've heard some players say this is an imperfect league. It's still giving women an opportunity to play. And right. It's still an opportunity. Um, my take is that they're hanging on a thread. You only have nine players right now. You're maintaining you're going to have a league right now, but it's a huge league hill to climb. I mean, the infrastructure is is in question now. You've got the one team that was the most successful, the Buffalo Buttes, you know, rescinding ownership. You know, we don't still know about where they are with partnerships, where they are with uh, sponsors. Their biggest deal last year was Dunkin' Donuts. I assume they'll be back, but mm-hmm. can they get much more than that? So I, I, I'm, I'm really curious, and I, I think something's going to have to bend sooner rather than later. All right, let's get to some puck headlines as we close out this uh, this this program. The late night, uh... late night podcast, and for your pleasure. By the way, I hope everybody's digging the daily podcast we've been doing. I know they're not the easiest to find; they're not on the feed. 
Um, they were on SoundCloud for a minute. They're not there anymore. But Greg has worked really hard, uh, and I want to give him a lot of credit That's for spearheading this whole thing and doing a lot of IT work. And now you can find them also embedded in some of our yeah, stories. If you go look at the stories that we're writing on ESPN.com, you can find the podcast at the top of the page. We're like about 17, 20 minutes long. We had Levy and Melrose on a recent one, and it's going to be cool stuff. So I think you'll dig it. Um, yeah, uh, puck headlines. Dateline the Patriots. Uh, Bill Belichick was here. He waved the fan banner before game three, but, uh, era, Emily, where is Tommy Brady? I've been told, uh, by sources close to the situation that Tom Brady will wave the flag at some point. He's open to it, but he doesn't want to do it until we get to a later, uh, clinching game. In fact, he was asked to do it in the earlier rounds. He's like, I'll do it in the final. Now it's the final. He's like, let's wait till game seven. There were TV reporters asking the Bruins players, like, era, yeah, yeah, who do you think's gonna wave the fan banner tonight? You, you think it'd be number 12? You think it would be Tommy Brady? I'm like, uh, it's exhausting. Dateline, uh, as a Jets fan, Dateline the Draft Combine. Capo Caco will miss the scouting combine. His agent <laughs> says it's because he wants to continue to celebrate Finland's world championship victory. Look, this kid has gone through a ton of hockey. He is totally impressed. And have you seen the images out of Helsinki and other places in Finland of how they're celebrating? Yeah. Who could blame this kid? I, I don't blame him. I just think it's hilarious that you have, you know, everybody anticipating, trying to see if this guy's going to go one or two in the draft. And it's like, nah, I'm cool. I'm just going to be face down in a fountain drinking a bottle of Finlandia. It's funny, though, because this was the big issue when I covered the NFL of who's going to participate in what events at the mm-hmm. Combine. Uh, and Chris Peters wrote a great piece, and I should suggest you all check it out. What's curious about the NHL Combine is there's no on-ice testing. Right. It's really weird. We right? just don't want to be Sam Bennett. That's your biggest fear. <laughs> right. Don't force Sam Bennett. Uh, Dateline, Edmonton, we mentioned earlier, Dave Tippett has been hired as the new head coach of the Edmonton Oilers. Interesting to uh, note that uh, there's been some front office house cleaning. Paul Coffey gone, Craig McTavish gone. So Kenny Holland doing the thing. Now he just has to figure out how to make some of those players with no move clauses to, gone. Yeah. Um, and I, I suggest that you check out the daily podcast we did uh, right before game two. It was with Steve Levy and Barry Melrose. And Barry Melrose had some really interesting thoughts and Dave Tippett. Uh, honestly, biggest order of business, though, this summer. you got to figure out what to do with Milan Lucic. It's indeed. All right. And finally, Dateline, the floor at TD Garden. You Correct. and I observed full beers on the floor after overtime. Now, I, I was told by some Bruins fans, I don't understand the concept of squirreling away beer for overtime. I do. You take them with you after the overtime is done and you pound them in the concourse. But I was also informed that many people believe that those beers may not be filled with beer, to circle back to our conversation about Carl Gunnarsson before. Your thoughts on full beers on the floor of TD Garden in Boston as the city's reputation takes a hit. Greg, I have no thoughts. Oh, perfect. That's the, uh, this is that's it for this episode of ESPN on Ice. Uh, I'm Greg Ryshinsky. This is Emily Kaplan. Thanks for everybody for listening to uh, a, a beautiful truncated late night edition of our dumb podcast. We're getting out of here now. Bye. This has been ESPN on Ice with Wyshynski and Kaplan. Subscribe to the show in the ESPN app or Apple Podcasts.